0: I think a lot of people might look at this too linear and see like, you know, skiing is what saved him. And that's what, almost my issue with the title in a way, cuz skiing really it saved me, but it's not to say that skiing will save everybody. Yeah. This isn't the book that says take your kids skiing. I think my takeaways are if you're passionate about something, you can get through anything. When I was in the hospital and I was at my absolute worst, dad told me every day, you know, when we get out of this we're going to go skiing. And just the thought of getting to do what I loved again was what I held on to. And I held on to that through the whole process. And when you find that passion, it'll drive who you're going to be. And it'll fit what your strengths are. And when you find a way to use your strengths and do what's going to make you happy, you're going to find your place in the world. And no matter what your circumstances are, you can find that.
1: Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast, Hey friends, it's Michelle Lamoureux, and welcome back to the Good Life Coach Podcast. Today, I'm actually interviewing two people, Rob and Ryan Delena. They are the co-authors of "Without Restraint: How Skiing Saved My Son's Life," and Rob is the father; his son is Ryan. And this is a memoir that's coming out in March of next year of 2023. Now, normally I've had an opportunity to read a book before I do an interview, but this doesn't have an advanced copy yet. So you are going to be going on the journey with me as I interview them. Um, but this is how it's described on Amazon. As a child, Ryan Delena had difficulty controlling his emotional outbursts. This led to placement in the therapeutic schools that relied on detrimental methods of behavior modification such as physical restraint. Nothing helped from a team of doctors to heavy medication. Then in 2010, Ryan was voluntarily committed to a mental hospital for further evaluation. His parents, Rob and Mary Beth, were counseled to place him in a group home, and they refused. So what you're going to hear today is their journey of how skiing actually is what led Rob and his wife ultimately to realize that the therapeutic model was not working for Ryan their son and what i appreciated about this conversation was that Ryan was a part of it. And we get to hear his dad's perspective and what he was thinking and and how they chose to navigate the therapeutic schools and what was being advised to them as parents. And then Ryan's experience as a child and how it impacted him mentally. Uh, Just a little bit about Rob. He was an attorney and for over 20 years has been running a small recruiting company called Legal Staffing Solutions. And Ryan is a junior at Northern Vermont University studying outdoor education and you will hear how skiing and finding his passion for adventuring to use his words gave him a sense of purpose and and rescued him from a, a situation that um created a lot of trauma in his life. So it's a really powerful story and I hope that you enjoy it. This is a podcast interview, which is for entertainment purposes only. What you're hearing today is not intended to be mental health advice or any sort of health advice. For that, you should seek counsel from your own trusted healthcare providers. Um, But this is in fact their story, their journey that they wanted to share. So let's get into the show. We have an interesting story for you today. It's a father-son journey of navigating the therapeutic educational system and the medical system when your child doesn't fit into what's considered the norm. And joining us today is Rob and Ryan Delena, and they are the authors of Without Restraint, How Skiing Saved My Son's Life. Welcome.
2: Welcome. Thank you so much. Great to see you.
1: Yes. So just a little backstory. Quickly, Rob and I worked together in a previous life when (laughs) he was an attorney at the law firm that I did marketing for. And uh, yeah, we just reconnected when he he told me about his his book that he's written.
2: We both ended up in different places. but We did. It was a good place to start.
1: It was a great place to start. For sure. It was a great place to start. And I think that's part of what we're talking about is just everyone's journey becomes unique in this idea that you know, you go to school and then you get your degree and then you get married and then you have the kid and they have to go through this perfect formulaic path, you know, it could maybe set people up. And this was a bit of your situation, wasn't it, Rob? Can you take us into your story a bit of how, you know, what's, what started here?
2: Sure. I mean, yeah. I, you just described Central Casting for me. I mean, I think I was a kid. I grew up in Revere, Mass., which, if you don't know, is sort of a, you know, a blue-collar town, and we lived near the airport. My mom worked at the airport. My dad was a, worked for the state and for, uh, worked at nights at Boston Garden parking cars, and you know, I went on to law school, and I, I've done well. My wife went to Trinity College, same college as, as me, and we were both college athletes, and I we moved out to Sudbury which is, you know, a well-to-do town where it's filled with doctors and lawyers and finance people and the pressure on kids is enormous and I think when Ryan was born I fully expected, you know, him to play second base for Harvard. I just, you know, I didn't think he'd maybe make it to the pros, but I thought he would play college sports and he would start by dominating little league and go on from there and when he struggled initially I think it was easy to look and say, okay, somebody can fix them. You know, we'll go to the right doctor or we'll go to the right school and you know, we'll get right back on track. And I think that led us to some really, you know, bad places and made some really bad decisions up until the point when, you know, he completely bottomed out and, you know, I don't want to skip ahead, but he, you know, ended up in a mental hospital for a couple of weeks and was on a medicine that had a terrible side effect. And you know at, at some point, I just woke up and said, "You know, all that really matters is his happiness. I don't care you know anything. I don't care about anything else. Just want to be happy for five minutes." And when I reached that point, I think I recalibrated his expectations for him and and changed me in the process as well. I mean, you look at life a little differently, and i I, I stopped worrying about you know what everybody thought, and I just wanted things to be good for him and it and we happened to start skiing around that same time and you know, again, I don't want to skip ahead, but it it led us to a much different path. You know, thank goodness.
1: Well, take us into what was going on because one of the things that I read in the bio was how Ryan was restrained at the young age of three. So what, what was Ryan like as a little boy? Like how did he end up in this system at such a, you know, as a toddler essentially?
2: That's a great question. So Ryan was, you know, he was a rambunctious kid he was very smart he could he, he learned language really early on he talked really early on he was you know i'll well, use the word diagnosed but we had a preschool tell us he was gifted at one point and i thought well that doesn't sound so bad but he was always defiant i mean i i remember a, a questionnaire we filled out when he for one doctor when is ryan the happiest and he was the happiest when he was doing what he wasn't supposed to do he just loved you know poking at that authority and 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 he would laugh all along the way. That was fun at home. And I, you know, and I I worked with that and I would chase him up the stairs and pretend I was mad and he would laugh and I would laugh. But when you get in a public school setting and you you can't or you won't comply, it all of a sudden they have to discipline you. And when you're, you know, you're really young age, it's really hard to discipline a kid. So we started at a preschool uh, in Sudbury that was, uh, you know, sort of a well-to-do preschool and it was the one everybody tried to get on the list for. And uh, Ryan went to a summer camp before the preschool started and he lasted one day and the preschool director asked us to stay or come back the next day. And then she wanted to have a pediatric neuropsychiatrist uh, observe him, which, you know, we were sort of taken aback by, but, you know, we said fine. And so this neuropsychiatrist observed him the next day for a couple of hours, met with us, and she took out a yellow legal pad and drew a circle. And then she bisected the circle and she said, Ryan is really strong on the left half of his brain. He's really weak on the right half. That imbalance creates uncertainty and, and he's he, he's, you know, that's a lot of his struggles sort of stem from there. And she advised us to put him in, the town had an integrated preschool, which is a mix of neurotypical kids and kids that were struggling, mostly developmentally delayed. There really weren't kids like Ryan that were just, you know, defiant. So he starts at this integrated preschool and he has one good year there. And then at the end of that year, he was still too young for kindergarten. And in the book, I described this as mistake number one. Uh, We were advised to repeat the program again, and we decided to do that. But for a linear kid like Ryan, that year starts at point A and ends at point B. Yeah. All of a sudden, he goes back the next year and he goes right back to point A again. And he, he we never took the time to explain to him what was going on, and he just unraveled in that second year.
0: Um, I, Ryan, do you want to say something about the, you remember that part of the of repeating that program? Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't remember too much of it. I definitely remember being older, but I remember what it was like, and. I just, I wasn't a kid who liked to sit still and I wasn't a kid who learned by people talking at me. Um, and I definitely, I'm realizing now I probably had a lot of ADHD my whole life. So I feel like I lived in my own world a lot. I lived in my own thoughts. And essentially whenever I got bored, I would just stand up and walk around. And I don't remember anybody ever telling me that that was bad. Uh, I just remember somebody standing up and walking around with me, and I'm like, "Cool, this is just what preschool is like." I guess you know, you just walk around and people walk around with you. You know, I kind of knew I wasn't supposed to be doing it, but nothing bad ever happened. But you know, behind the scenes, people were taking note of that and sort of planning the next step. And had I known what the next step is, and I, had I been old enough to process it, I probably would have sat still. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but you're so also three or four years old. So this is where yeah. the system does sound like, you know, the fact that they were doing neuropsych evaluations on a three-year-old makes me feel like the person who did that probably should have had a neuropsych evaluation, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> that seems ridiculous. Uh, kids at that age, especially, not just, you know, generalized, but boys who have a lot of energy and need to move or maybe are a little more sporty or whatever, like that's, I think that's pretty normal. For, you know, I, I just- right. yeah so so that must have been so frustrating but when you have these experts and you've got this you know school that everyone's trying to get into and they're telling you oh we need to do this in good faith you're like oh they they should know better right rob i mean is that kind of where your head was at and that's what
2: happened so the 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 neuropsychiatrist was super smart i'm sure one of the most impressive people i'd ever been you know around i mean i but you know, she would come in for 15 minutes and observe him or an hour and observe him, especially in that second year when he was repeating the program and say, he's regressed. Things are going south here. He can't go to public kindergarten. And she I don't recommended. not mean to laugh. Was he four? Four. Yeah. Four. I mean, maybe five. It's not
1: funny. It makes five. me so uncomfortable, uh, you know, Ryan, it's, it's that insane. that's why I'm like.
0: like you're laughing at me. It's, funny too. You, it's, it's true. After the entire Outcome of a kid's life based on how they play when they're four years old. It's kind of outrageous to me because you think of how many things in your life altered how you negotiate the world and how you perceive things. So many things can change, but they're trying to take one red flag and assuming it will spiral at each of these steps and you won't be a functional adult, you know, 10, 20 years down the line.
1: Right. Can I just ask? So you do talk about. You were, I believe, three years old. Were you at like the summer program or something with the woman tackled you? Can you tell that story? And like, Rob, Rob I'd love to. So let me set it up. Yeah, yeah please. Set,
2: so so it, when year two sort of falls apart at, at the integrated preschool, which was in part of our town, okay. um, she then recommends this private placement, a therapeutic school. I won't say the name. And we changed all the names in the book. Um, that was known, uh, it, was, it was described to us in, in in their marketing materials as a holding environment. and And they write in the first parts of their literature on their website. They talk about a holding environment. It was described to us as when kids get dysregulated, they would hug them. and And I think for kids who are nonverbal and and they have trouble communicating, there is probably studies that show touch. Can help, right? It does help to sort of decompress them. Um, so we went into it thinking, okay, that sounds plausible. Yeah, he'll they be then, held
1: like hugged, hugged, just his...
2: held like held. Yeah, yes. Okay. And they, they trained us how to do it. Uh, so anyway, then I'll skip ahead. So w- we then make the decision he's going to go to this school. Uh, at some point, a woman from the school came to observe Ryan at the integrated preschool to in, to tell him he was going to go to this new place in the fall. And I'll let Ryan pick up the story because it's a good one.
0: Yeah. So essentially, like I said, whenever I got a Something somebody would just kind of walk around with me and talk to me, um, so that was a little bit of what I was used to, and at this time I hadn't really had any majorly negative experiences in my life. Like, I think back on my memories, and it's like you know, typical kid memories, you know, playing in the backyard, opening presents on Christmas, you know, <laughs> dad slipping a burger on the grill. It's like this is the first really bad thing that had happened to me, and I think it was like a pretty big loss of innocence moment for me, so. This lady from um, from the school I was heading to, um, she uh, comes to observe me, and I was told it was just she was going to meet me and talk with her a little bit. And I sort of expressed a little bit of disappointment how I didn't want to leave my school. You know, I liked that I had some friends there, uh, but we go into this room at recess, and everything's going pretty normal up to this point. And I'm playing with these big foam dice. And everything went fine until I had to put away the foam dice. And I was just like, I don't want to put away the foam dice. And I was like sort of resisting when she was trying to take them out of my hand. And instead of just like playing the game with me at this point, she grabs one of my arms and puts it behind my back and then like rips the foam dice out of my hand. And I'm kind of startled because I don't know what's happening. And my most natural reaction is trying to fight her off because I can feel sort of the grip of her nails like digging into my arm and it hurts. So I try and fight her off. And at this point, she gets my other arm and pins me right to the floor. And I am freaking out. And the more I struggle, the more force she applies. And this is another part I remember vividly. One of the other staff members who worked at the preschool who was kind of walking around with me was just kind of standing there. So... I didn't really process it as like, oh, I'm being attacked. I knew because she was standing there that like, this was a thing that was supposed to happen. This was a punishment. And I just kept fighting and fighting the more it hurt until eventually I just got too tired and I just kind of laid down and then she just kind of got up and we went on with the rest of the day, like nothing happened. But I knew since she was from this new school and she just did this awful thing to me, I kind of knew everything was about to change. I knew this new school was not going to be a good thing, and that this was going to be a regular thing when I went there.
1: Mm, So sorry, Ryan. And she said to you, you, "Are you ready to feel safe?" When she was restraining you.
0: Yeah, she kept being like, "Are you ready to feel safe?" And I know (laughs) at that point, and I learned throughout school, "Are you ready to feel safe?" Meant, "Are you ready to stop resisting?" Are you? um, Are you ready ready to comply? Yeah. You know, anytime I thought back, they were like, Are you ready to feel safe? Are you ready to be safe? They meant, Are you ready to stop trying to escape and stop trying to move and just listen?
1: How old were you, Ryan, when that happened?
0: I think I was probably
2: around uh, forty five, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe just 40. five. Yeah, I think uh and you went to Rob, did they tell you
1: what they had done? Did you No. Have-
2: no, I, I didn't hear this story until Ryan, until we wrote the book. I mean it, I swear. He, no, he I believe, oh my goodness, uh, I'm I'm sure. Yeah.
1: He was probably when so scared it, too. I was,
2: I was just flabbergasted because I, I didn't know that at all. And, you know, I think back to the, you know, we were, we felt good about the decision to put him in this place. I and mean, this, the, like I said, the neuropsychiatrist was really smart and she knew the system well. And, you know, we wanted a place that was in the suburbs near us. It was, you know, just because he wouldn't be in the van for an hour or two. And, you know, it would draw from, he might have some friends because there would be some Sudbury kids. And, and when you looked at the place, it, it you know, it, it looked like a suburban private school that had a barn and, you know, everything looked good. And it just, you know, I think it, while he was being restrained in those, in those first few years, and we were, you know, we were the uh, first couple of years, especially, he was so young. If he came home and said, you know, how was your day, Ryan? It says you had three restraints. You know, you must have backed it up. We were sort of, we were angry with him. And then he would say, yeah. "They try, you know, they try to kill me. They're trying to strangle me. And would say, come on, you know, it's not that bad. Maybe if you had just listened, you wouldn't have gotten that restraint. And we were sort of on the school side in the beginning, which I have tremendous guilt about. I mean, I, I hate yeah. even saying. We
1: all, doing, we all do the best that we can with the information. Ryan, you were going to say something?
0: Yeah, I was going to say, that was the part I remember most vividly was, um, every day I went home and I would talk about this and I would just be like, you know, dad, like, you know, I couldn't breathe. You know, I got a rug burn. I got a bruise. Like, you know, they're trying to hurt me. I don't get it. And part of it was I was having a hard time articulating what was happening because I was explaining it like a kid would. So of course, when I would come home, you know, I would tell him what happened, but I would explain it like a kid would. And of course, you know, what do kids do? They exaggerate and they tell tall tales and you don't know, know, what's true and what's not. And I would try and explain how what they were doing was hurting me, but I didn't know how to articulate it in a way that would make sense to him. Um, So of course he probably was hearing it as though I just didn't like that I was being punished. But what I was trying to say is like, when I go to school, they're hurting me. Like when they put me on the ground, like I can't breathe sometimes I get rug burns. Like it's painful. Like, why do I have to do this? And you know, Like he said, he would just assume it was my fault, you know?
1: Yeah. And when you said you couldn't breathe, one of the things you mentioned, that woman who tackled you essentially and held you down, she also covered your mouth.
0: So sometimes if you were screaming, they would cover your mouth. So you wouldn't disrupt other classes. Oh my
1: God. So again, I'm, I'm laughing out of discomfort. Not out of, there's I nothing know. funny about this. Just I complete know. discomfort. What was the, that, so you keep saying this woman was smart. The first woman who did the neuropsych evaluation when he was like three, what did they diagnose him with? Why, why was he recommended to go through into the system? What was the actual great diagnosis? question?
2: So That's a great question. So I tell the story in the book after, i you know, back up a little when he, once we sort of identified that, that he was going to go to the integrated preschool and she, after she observed him and drew the circle and said that he he was different, essentially, she did do educational testing on him, which which um, determined some deficits. He was super strong in some areas and really weak in, in other areas, um, most of which. Like typically, if you were spectrumy, you know, reading people's emotions and things like that, were but but again, he was four years old when he took the test, so it's really hard to determine if the results are accurate. She then, uh, I remember we were sitting in her office and she takes out the diagnostic and statistical manual, the DSM 5, which is this huge thick book, looks like a telephone book, and she starts stumbling through it. And, she's, and she said, you know, in order to get services from the town, in other words, in order for the town to pay for everything, we've got to, we need a diagnosis. So we have to tell them something. And she would go through and she would stop and look and scratch her head and no, uh, and then she'd go through again. And then finally she nods and, and she says, that's PDD-NOS, a, a Pervasive Developmental Disorder, Not Otherwise Specified. So, if you think about that, it's pervasive, it's a developmental disorder, but we really don't know what it is. It's the diagnosis. So, it wasn't so,
1: ADHD. It uh, wasn't ADHD. Ryan, do you think no. it was ADHD?
0: No. What? I'm very certain. And um, my. You think it was or I, not? I do. I do yeah. think it was ADHD. Yeah. Um, and then um, my, uh, my therapist, um, has confirmed with me now. He's like, yeah, you definitely have some ADHD, and the only reason that we didn't medicate it later on is that um it the medication would have um interfered with your ability to be energetic and do the adventure sports you like to do. So that's probably what I had. I remember um uh, my dad telling me that they tried Ritalin and it made me more hyper, so they just assumed it didn't work. Um, but There was other things going on beyond my ability to um, pay attention. Uh, When I was a kid, I had an insane amount of memory. Um, You know, the story I always like to tell is my dad had me doing like the Gettysburg Address, the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, movie scenes. I could repeat anything word for word. And that's been the case for me my whole life. Anything that goes in sequence, if I can remember one part, I'll remember the rest. In fact, I just had an assignment where I had to list every rock climb I've ever done. And I could... (laughs) a lot of the moves and like what I was feeling, what I was doing on every single rock climb that I've done for the past four years. Wow. That's so amazing. I was really strong with memory, but I was really weak with other things. So I think that was going on too. Got it. And Michelle, he was, he was a volatile kid. I mean, Ryan was a, my wife should say a zero or a 10 kid. If, if things were
2: great, you know, it was perfect. Then he was a 10. And if one little thing went awry, he, you know, he would, he would melt down and he was, he was difficult. He was yeah. the kid When we walked into a birthday party, the other parents would roll their eyes and groan because he had the ability to cause disruption. And I think in a public school setting, had we left him in and we should have, he would have gotten in trouble a lot. He would have been in the principal's (laughs) office constantly, Um, but he wouldn't have been tackled every day. And that's that's the mistake we made. Right.
1: But understandably, too. And I have other friends whose children are the ones that, you know, disrupt or whatever, and they feel embarrassment or like, oh, they have to pause and they don't know how to navigate. And they also Mm -hmm. want their child to feel balanced. And so they're looking for answers. They're seeking out those experts because they just want their child to feel like, you know, to be able to assimilate to some degree into whatever setting that they're doing in a way that is socially acceptable, acceptable, right? I mean, it's the world we live in yeah there's no judgment here what was your wife thinking about all this was she on the same page
2: so you know my wife is is a really a classic type a i mean i'm sort of type a but you know i sort of i'm italian so i definitely fly by the seat of my pants sometimes and go with my gut she she really admires hierarchy and process and, and she's made a career of it And I think she just reflexively wanted to listen to the experts and they knew more than we did. And, and that was true, you know, true on paper and it just took a few examples where I would just look and just logically say they're wrong about this. And not only, maybe they're not even wrong, but they've only thought about this for that 15 minutes when they met with us and then they moved on to another patient. They're human beings. They're not infallible. So I think for her, it was, it was a struggle to, to go against conventional wisdom. And it took a long time. Um, and then just to sort of advance the story. I mean, a lot of the risk, rest- I worked at home during this period, my wife worked in Cambridge. So I was mm-hmm. the one that was forced to do a lot of the restraints early on. Mm. And we had a nanny who was trained in in ABA therapy and the restraints. So I would it's watch ABA her do the therapy,
1: restraints. I'm sorry, what applied, is
2: beha- applied behavioral analysis. Okay. Is, it's, it's, it's sort of hard to define, but it's, it's the, it's, were the go-to, I think, with special needs kids. And it's, oh God, it's a terrible analogy, but it's almost like training a dog. I mean, it's, re- it's reward and punishment, reward and punishment all the way through. And, you know, they, they grow up in that, this culture. They're taught this. And, you know, they can be great. They can use positive charts and sticker charts and all of these things when kids have trouble communicating that they look and see, you know, a smiley face and, and that's a good thing or a frowny face and it's a bad thing. I just think the second you start putting your hands on a kid, it's, it it all goes out the window. And I would watch her do these restraints over silly little things and it would go on for an hour. And as Ryan got bigger, he was, he was stronger and they would wrestle on the floor for 20 minutes and he would be crying and, and rug burns. And, if I asked him in that moment, what did you do wrong to start the, the restraint? I don't think he could have told me, and I'm not sure that Nanny could have told me. I mean, it just, it, it devolves so quickly into a physical conflict where you know one side is gonna win. And when I would restrain him early, when he was little, I mean, I could use a, my finger and just press him to the floor and it wasn't as bad, but as he got bigger, I'm a man and my mm-hmm. adrenaline would start pumping and I, would, mm-hmm. I was gonna win that wrestling match. And I would leave that confrontation and say, this is just terrible. And I would tell my wife about it when she got home, but five hours later, you know, it's lost in that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, on weekends, she'd have to do it. And I think she'd she'd get a little taste of it. And then just one example we had was our nanny ended up uh, having a baby and leaving. And we couldn't find an ABA-trained nanny at the, quickly. So we, we replaced her for a year with a woman who was heading to medical school, had none, no formal training in this. And she just sort of relied on instinct and humor. And I would see throughout the day, she restrained him hardly ever. And it's it just kind of the little spark of like, are we doing the right thing here? This seems crazy. And little by little, we stopped restraining him at home. The problem is we could never get the school to stop. And I, and, and we had a tough time. We started looking at other programs, but once he went to a therapeutic school that restrained him and he had a one-to-one aid, no other school would accept him other than a place that was much like the
0: place we were at. And that was, we were left scratching our heads at what to do. Kind of what we, I was talking about was sort of the system being broken and with each step, they sort of take away more of your freedom. What they don't tell you, you know, The town pays for it, so it doesn't cost you anything out of pocket. So when they're like, oh, you want to give them a one-to-one aid? You're like, sure. Amazing, right. Private tutor-like, right? Yeah, sure. And and then when that school goes wrong, if you have to leave for any reason, if there's a school that doesn't offer you a one-to-one aid, you can't go to that school. They're like, well, you can go to this other program for a year first before you come here. And once he's demonstrated, he can do it without a one-to-one aid, you know, you can come back. But at this point I was already so damaged from what was happening to me. There was no way I was going to make it through a year program and like prove it to them. So you're kind of trapped. It's almost like, um, it's almost like having a felony on your record. Once you have the restraints and once you have certain accommodations on your record, schools will look at you and like turn you away without a second thought.
1: (laughs) Wow. At what point? So this nanny came in, what was different about that interaction and what do you, Can you articulate, like, did you feel a difference
0: or? I knew she was a good person and I never associated her with what was going on at school. Um, But she was definitely rough with me. I know she, she would like not let the smallest things slide. I tried to turn a little cartwheel one time. There was like a little stroller hanging in the garage. And when I was very little, it like, you know, kind of bothered me that one of the wheels would be crooked and I would fix it. And just because she didn't like that, I always had to walk by it and fix the wheel. <laughs> strained me until I gave up on trying to fix the wheel. It was totally different. I just remember I would come home and like me and th- would play card games and she taught me math, which was crazy. She was super smart. And at this time I figured out I was good at math and anything that I was good at, you know, it made me feel good to be good at something. So I would have her show me math. So I was like eight years old and she's like showing me how algebra works. And I'm just like, I don't know. I just have really fun memories. She also skied. Um, and we talked a lot about skiing. So like I connected with her, but there was never any conflict there. There was never tension. I was never scared of her. It was just, it was fun.
1: Yeah. She and let, let me just basically say Michele, be I mean, a kid more. It sounded like too. Wrong. Like she just let him like.
0: It's true.
2: It's true. Know, but I, I feel, <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. it's, she didn't, she didn't have the playbook and I feel badly, you know, the first nanny and we changed their names in the book, but yeah. she, she was she was tired to do exactly what she did. We we asked her to do this ABA applied behavioral analysis, restrain him when he when he acts up, and she did exactly what she was. She was supposed doing to her look. job
1: and probably oh, yeah. as well reading. as she you know the fact that she wasn't letting anything she fly. She probably felt she good at that. Great at it.
2: She yeah. taught Ryan to read. She did a lot of great things. And then when she came back after her maternity leave, and th- at this point, I said, I don't want to restrain Ryan anymore in the house. You have to find a new way. She did. She just totally changed. Yeah, and, and she, was became, <laughs> yep, she was just she did, doing
1: her job. She was just doing her job. What were they afraid of? What's the idea of the restraint? Like, was it just to get him to be calm? Like, what was the objective?
2: It becomes a punishment, I think. I think uh, if, if you said, you know, Ryan, you know, you need to put your toys away. Or Ryan, you know, don't knock over Abigail. No, so I mean, so it's like time Abigail's out
1: time. times a thousand.
2: Yeah, right? start Instead with a timeout. F- Yes, yeah. You start with a timeout and then when he refused to go into the timeout and remember he was defiant anyway, yeah. Brian, you have to do a timeout. I'm not doing a timeout. Now you're the grown up and your next play is to grab him. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, I wish we just said, do we really care that he knocked over? You know, blocked
0: our, you know, or, right. Is that his didn't. sister? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay by something here um there's a major difference between school number 1 and all the schools after that and you know the laws have changed on restraints and you know I like to believe that that's a good thing but schools are always going to do things behind the scenes and I know that this school and I'm trying hard not to name them just it's conversational um, I know that they definitely were not supposed to be doing this the way they were doing all of the other schools it was a last resort if you were going to like uh-huh. try from a staff member and they had to grab you or if you were gonna like try and hurt somebody they were gonna grab you at this school i remember i knocked over a snowman that like some kid made i didn't even see the kid make the snowman i didn't have any vendetta against him i just like felt like knocking something over you know I'm, I'm, i'm a boy like that's how it goes um And I remember um, this one staff member, he pulled me aside and he's like, when we get back to class, we're going to do a very long hold. And then he walked me back to class arm around my wrist, not even right there. It wasn't even heat of the moment. It was like premeditated. And I had to walk down this long hill that took 20 minutes to walk down, knowing the second I got back in, I was going to be on the floor for 10 minutes. And then totally calmly, not resisting, I walked into the classroom and he put me on the floor for 10 whole minutes. It was a punishment. They were totally abusing their power to do it. We don't
2: know, Michelle. In 2015, the rules changed in Massachusetts and the, and they're no longer allowed. Prone restraints, the face-down ones, are, are really restricted and in only in extreme circumstances. And the there's a whole bunch of criteria they have to jump through to even be, able, to be allowed to do it. But you're no longer supposed to use restraint as a punishment. Now, yeah. just to Put into context, this is pre that rule, and this school was designed around using restraint as a punishment. So, yeah, so I think it was it's their better. whole
1: philosophy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. And also, probably there's been a lot of parents who complained or like had different awareness or like, really, can't you do it a different way? Because they probably went in with good intentions, like you did too, Rob, and your wife, where you're like, yeah, he's rowdy, you know, this is going to help him one to one, you know, valuation and all of this, like added on like you think it's a positive and then you know the more you're in it you're like wait a second this isn't feeling right your intuition started speaking to you right and and your gut was like "Mm." so when did so the the nanny came in you you started seeing stuff and then where where did the skiing come into play
2: (laughs) so right around 2009 he's still at the first school tell us how old he he is
1: because i think just having uh, a sense of age is important in this i would
2: have You were seven, right. You'll turn eight in in May of that year. So you were seven years old. And uh, I used to describe weekends at our house as 48 hours of hell because, you know, Ryan was really hard to keep busy and he inevitably had conflict with his sister And we, you know, I just, my whole job was to keep him busy. And we would go to Home Depot for hours and walk around. We would just do anything to to keep him busy. And we didn't have, you know, really a winter activity at all. And winters, you know, in New England are cold and there's not much you can do outside. Um, So it was during Christmas break. And I just, I don't remember why, why exactly, but I I know he did something and I had to separate him from his sister and I just tossed him in the car with a coat and gloves and a hat. And I think I grabbed his bike helmet and, and we drove to Noshoba Valley, uh, which is this little ski, little ski hill, uh, about 45 minutes from our house. And all of a
0: sudden we were there and I can let Ryan maybe take it from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so skiing was funny because, uh, he didn't really ski for about 20 years. And even when he did ski, uh, he, it, he wasn't like a pro skier. He was probably at the same level I was when he hopped on the magic carpet. The only thing I knew about skiing is I saw someone do it in curious, George. Um, so I was asking him like, how do they stay on your feet? And he's like, Oh, they're special boots. And, you know, I just remember, going in a long line. I kind of hated lines. Um, I put these really uncomfortable boots on. I put the skis on and I'm like, oh, what are you doing skiing? I'm picturing this curious George thing in my head. I'm like, you go down the hill. So we go up the magic carpet. And I think he wanted to explain something to me, but I just kind of went off. And this is sort of the coolest thing about it um, is I just kind of had a natural um, ability to ski sort of right away. So I went down the hill and I ended up instructing here years later. So I've seen all of the scenarios in which this goes wrong. And somehow it went right. I went straight down the hill and I just kind of looked at the line because I knew I needed to get back in line to go up the magic carpet again. And I made like a perfect little J turn. <laughs> and I just smiled. I was like, that was fun. <laughs> you know, that was cool. And we just did that over and over again.
1: And so Rob, we had- what, were you, what were you observing with... Ryan. So
0: I, 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 never thought we would get
2: that far because when he says he hated lines I mean Ryan wouldn't wait for anything. We, it, I walked to an ice cream store or a stand and there was a line we, we I, I would pay people to let us cut. I mean, it was, he could never wait for anything. So I, I, I didn't, I hadn't skied in a long, long time, but I know there's lift lines and the process for renting your boots and equipment is tedious and slow. I never thought we would get to the point where we would actually be standing on the snow. And then when we finally got off the magic carpet, it sort of hit me like, geez, I didn't tell him anything about how to ski. I don't really even know what to tell him <laughs> at this point. And I started to explain to him how to slow down or stop. And he just looked at me and just shot down you the went. hill. And, it, yeah. and, I went. and I just was, everybody falls that first minute or two, the first second or two. And and he didn't. And I just said, well, that was, and I had to go down and I barely made it down. I hadn't skied in a long time. And we had to wait in a little line to go back up again. And he tolerated the line and that was different. That was something I hadn't seen and we had yeah, a I think, great couple of hours. The thing
0: that I would say about that is it's almost like skiing was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. And I think um, one of the things that you learn about um, in the mountains, and I learned this over many years, is just sort of the process of patience and reward. Um, I hated lines because I hated waiting because I just didn't get the point to it. I'm just like, we're here forever and for what? And I think skiing was one of the first places I processed, like, you know, waiting in this line means I get to do the thing that makes me really happy. So I, did, I didn't care that there was like, you know, 20 kids in front of me at the magic carpet because it just meant as soon as I got there, I got to ski again. And I think um, as soon as that got introduced, I started to demonstrate concepts of just being a regular human that people, when I was four, assumed I would never be able to achieve in my life. You
1: know, wow. That's
0: true. Wow. And then so we this went, was the we beginning of it though right yeah, Rob because skiing saved yeah.
1: your son's life so how yep. so tell us tell us how this so evolved. we went back
2: the next day and I and I hired an instructor because I couldn't teach him how to stop or slow down he just he would ski until he landed in the parking lot <laughs> like sparks <laughs> would come off the ski. I'm like all right we gotta we have to stop that and so she takes him off for an hour and I did a couple of runs myself I probably went in the bathroom for the for you know a little break and when they came back, he skied with her and he did this little stop and he sprayed me with snow. And I was like, Oh, that was pretty good. And she, and she said, we just came down the expert run and you know, the expert runs there are small, but nobody skis the expert run. On yeah, the second day."
0: <laughs> no. So, uh, so, I mean, I don't know. You remember that, right? That one's really vivid. I mean, I guess um, skiing, this is when I started to realize I really liked skiing because I guess the thing, But I would say, you know, he talks about me being defiant as a kid. I don't think I necessarily wanted to define authority. I definitely wanted to define the boundaries of, um, you know, what was possible. And I was always, I was never the kid who wanted to be a doctor when he grew up. I was the kid that wanted to be an astronaut, a fighter jet pilot, you know, climb Mount Everest. I wanted to be an explorer. So skiing kind of showed me what exploring was like. And I liked adventuring. And we went up the lift and I remember she taught me how to do a turn and I followed her doing this turn and it clicked very quickly for me. Another thing about me as a kid, I was never somebody who could learn with lectures. I was a kinesthetic learner. So I learned by doing. Mm. So as soon as I did one turn, it didn't take long for me to start doing the turn right every time. Mm. And then when I got to the top of the lift, I was just like, I haven't been to that side of the hill yet. I want to check that out. I want to, you know, explore what's over there. And she was just like, we can go that way. You know, she didn't say like, no, you can't go that way. And I didn't know what the black diamond meant. But if you know anything about skiing, I don't know if anyone in our audience skis. uh, A black diamond means most difficult at the resort. They're the hardest runs. So we go down the hill. I popped a ski off and, you know, I had to put it back on. And this is a tiny hill. But when you're a tiny kid, this felt like this grand adventure. Like I'm on this steep hillside. I have to get my ski back on. And then I go down and I'm just kind of doing it. I'm not really questioning it. All the instructors were questioning it. And I know who this lady was because I went on to be a ski instructor there. Like I said before, Um, she was actually the director of the ski school. So I ski past this line of people. And I see her at the end of the line and she like kind of looks down at me because I'm really short. And she's like, did you do that run on your first day? <laughs> and like, yeah. And she's like, oh my God, nice job. And I uh, see all see other people are looking now. And I look at that. I'm like, why is everybody looking at me? Like I just came back from war. Uh,
1: <laughs> so what a nice experience though, to be like all that positive reinforcement for you doing something where you're just having fun. And feeling most like yourself. Right. How beautiful that is. Right. That, so that must've been like a huge, like light bulb, right, Rob, for you. Yeah.
2: And it was, it was, it was the opposite of any other experience I had ever had with him in in any place. I mean, he, he would cause, he could foment discord anywhere. And and then that, that, for some reason in that environment, I think ski, you know, the kids are a little bit, you know, he sort of fit in more there than anywhere else. And so, We then the next weekend we went to Wachusett, which Massachusetts is probably is the biggest mountain in Massachusetts. And it's a it's a legit mountain, I would say. And we get there. It was Martin Luther King Day weekend and the place is packed and the lines are like 40 minutes to get on a lift. And I said, this is it. This, is, this was fun for a week and it's all going to fall apart here and we'll never do this again uh, because he's going he's to lose it. I even right. ran, went inside and I asked if they had a special pass for kids with disabilities. Can I cut this line somehow? Can I pay extra? And the lady right. looked at me like I was crazy and I was like, all right. So, But again, he got through it. It wasn't always easy. I mean, he would flop down on the line every once in a while and go on without me and we're never going to make it. But as soon as we got <laughs> on the chair... He was happy as could be and and we got we we survived something we wouldn't survive any place else, and so that led to stowe and stowe was more challenging in vermont and, and he did his first double black diamond which nobody does on their fourth or third no. day of skiing and we had a little conflict over that it was our first conflict where at this point he was better than me already and i couldn't ski the a double black diamond so there's no way and i told him maybe when you're 12 or 13 i'll let you we can start to separate but we can't separate on the mountain no, you're, no. you're eight years old, yeah. years old seven years old seven years old i yeah. i lose you and so ryan tell the story when you skied
0: your first double black hole. Oh, I learned my lesson because all of mine had been long, but um, essentially we're riding the lift and I want him to keep in mind that um, had I listened to him, I would have skied my first double black the same year I skied like one of the hardest runs in North America. So thank God I didn't listen to you. Um, We're riding the lift and I'm like, I want to do a double black. And I had been formulating this plan for months in my head because I knew he wasn't going to let me. And he's like, no, you can't do it. And I told him at the top of the lift, I'm like, I'm going to do it. He's like, yeah, whatever. And then I just kept skiing past the sign. And he was in disbelief. Like, he just did it. So he skis the trail next to me. I don't even know if he could process that he was going to find me. And I ski out the bottom. And I'm like, looking at him, like, there you go. I did it. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So I patted him on the head. And I
2: said, all right, you, know, you're, 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 you can make your own decisions from here on out. And that was true in the East. We then went out to Vail. When you start to ski out west, the resorts are massive. And yes. if, he, if we separated, he could be lost for days. So yes. we had a lot of conflict in those early years, especially out west, over things that, that I just couldn't do. And, in fact, I, and this led to sort of the, the breakup with the first school. We went out to Vail, and he jumped off of a cliff, which sounds, you know, but if you ski, it's, it's, it's something Normal.
0: that skiers do all the time. Yeah. But, when, but, Ryan, tell a story about what happened when you got back to school and told the story. Yeah, you know, I, I skied off a cliff and if, if you don't know much about steep skiing and stuff, um, Vail has these whole areas that they mark off with signs called, you know, extreme terrain um, because a lot of skiers like to jump off the cliffs on purpose. It's fun. And when there's good snow on the ground, you land and it's really soft and it doesn't even feel like you've gone off anything very high. And I actually exploded on the fall. Like my gear came right off my feet and some snowboarder came right up to me and was like, oh, dude, you know, I wiped out on that one last week too. You know, you got to hike back, get your gear. And I'm just like, oh, all right. So this is a normal thing in skiing. So when I back to school, um, they did not think it was normal. So we have this little group thing where we all sit in a circle and talk about our feelings. And I was telling them the story. I'm like, oh, you know, it was so crazy. Like it was so steep. And there was this cliff. And when I jumped, I fell and like all my gear came off. And then they're all looking at me. Like I just told them that I like was playing with a gun or something. They're like, Ryan, like, you need to understand that is not safe. And I actually had like an emergency meeting, like the principal of the school called me into his office. And he's like, you're wearing a shirt right there. It says dead man's cliffs. And I hear that over vacation, you almost became a dead man. And I'm like, not understanding why this is so serious. Like you guys should meet that snowboarder.
1: (laughs) Right. And also your dad was with you and okaying what you were doing. So it's not like you. You're uh, you're right. So So that's, did they call you?
2: No, but they questioned my parenting to Ryan. And that was, and I heard about that after the fact that, and that really irritated me because here we're having this the one good thing in his life and everything. Yeah. And we're, we're advancing and he's having a ball and, and, and it's we're seeing a little glimmer of hope for the first time and they want to take it away. And then that mm-hmm. was one of the last straws there. So things, I'll just advance the story a little bit. They Things start falling apart there at the end of that year. He, um, he did go back for the fall. And at that point, That's I third said, grade?
1: You, would that be third
2: grade now? Fourth, I think. I think it's fourth. fourth. Yeah, uh, okay. Fourth, and I said you can't restrain him anymore and they said okay if we're not going to restrain him anymore you have to come pick him up every time he gets in trouble and I said fine when, when we would get to the point where we would restrain him you'll come pick him up and take him home for the day and I said fine so the first five days they called me within two hours one hour by the fifth day they called me I had I dropped him off I drove down the street my phone rang and they said come get him and we walked out the door and that was the last time we never went back
1: you didn't, I you didn't. never went it. back that awesome. was it. And so, I, mean, I didn't even tell.
2: I didn't yeah. tell my wife until I called her. <laughs> Ryan's not going back. It's not going back, and that was it. So, so we had a little conflict over that, but she understood. We knew it was coming to an end. It was she. She wanted to have another place set up before, which of was course, logical. I get it.
1: I get it. But, um, but I, I also get what you did. I probably would have done what yeah. you did yeah. for sure. Exactly. I would have. Uh, yeah, exactly. I've got that Mediterranean in Me too. So I would have been like, yeah, oh, no. for sure, for sure.
2: <laughs> 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 the hothead, so. And so, and then we, well, one part we sort of skipped over at some point, Ryan had started to talk to a, a talk therapist, a traditional talk therapist. Okay. And she was, an she hated the school. She's the first one who used the words PTSD and said, he's damaged from this. You're going to have to unravel everything the school's done and he needs to get out of there. So I had a little more support mm. um, professionally than I, than I did before. And so now Ryan's home, it's, it's the fall and we're looking for another place. We're getting rejected everywhere without even an interview because of his paperwork. He's home all day. We have a tutor, a couple of hours a day. And then he did two things at this point, he was starting to video stuff for YouTube and uh, Ryan, why don't you pick up the story The couple of things you did, which led <laughs> to the next stop in your journey.
0: At this point, my dad had realized I was like a great skier and um, like, We had just um, figured out that YouTube was a thing. And um, I was just getting old enough to have like an iPod touch and to learn about the Internet. And we started uploading my ski videos to YouTube um, under like the moniker Extreme Ryan. Uh, So um, at this point, me and my friend Carl, um, you know, he was my friend from down the street we're thinking we're going to be the next big thing on YouTube. And I'm like, I'm extreme rise. So we should make videos of stunts like during the off season. So (laughs) I I learned about parkour. There was a movie that was really popular called Prince of Persia and the Sands of Time at this point that featured a lot of parkour. So I'm like, I should do that. And I just started jumping off the playground and we started jumping off of decks and things and videoing it. And eventually I leveled up. I realized that the second story window was only like three feet higher than the deck was i actually measured it with a measuring tape and i was like you know this isn't too hard for me but it'll look really cool on the internet if you know it's like you know a nine ten year old kid jumping out of a second story window and doing a parkour roll and then the other one we did that we thought would get us a lot of views was we did um real life fruit ninja so I was just like, you know, this is a pretty simple concept. You take a bag of apples and start throwing them at me and I'll take the bread knife and just try and chop them up. It's like baseball, but the baseball cuts in half, you know? Yeah. yeah. So we got in a lot of trouble for that. My sister was bragging about it a little bit at school and probably embellishing. And um, a principal there pretended to be really interested and was actually taking a lot of notes for child service.
1: Oh, no. Rob, (laughs) at any point, were they threatening to take Ryan away from you was, was so that that led to
2: a a DCF investigation and they came out for a couple of hours. Uh, Department children and families or something. I think it messages DCF it's, it's got different monikers in different places, but essentially child serve child protective services comes out and, um, and they interview him and we, you know, Ryan is a very honest person. He never lies. And so I basically told him, you're going to have to lie to this woman. You can't tell her you use the hammer, you use the nails, you use the saw, you you have free reign and you climb out in the woods and you explore, like you've got to pretend you don't do anything, and which was really tough <laughs> for a nine or 10 year old. Uh, but he did a good job. We we, 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 we survived that. The talk therapist at this point, she starts to kind of, she starts to worry us that Ryan's going to hurt his sister and he's never been aggressive with her. They would fight like typical siblings. Um, but that he was going to do something, you know, with extreme. a knife or accidentally yeah. extreme and, and she was going to end up in a hospital. And so she, at this point, he was on a medicine called Lamictal and Lamictal was the new hot thing in mental health medicine. It was um, it, he was on a very low dose because it had a terrible side effect called Stevens Johnson syndrome, which mm-hmm. is this blistering that happens all over your body mm-hmm. and you can die from it. And, but she put him on a low dose and said, "If he has any form of a rash, we'll just take him off." But it's, it has great results; it's going to mellow him out, and it's going to be, you know, a, a savior. So we put him on this low dose, which we never should have done. Um, she then starts to talk to us about a hospital stay, where she said, "If we put him in a hospital for two weeks, a mental hospital, they can they can play with the lamictal a little in an environment where it's safe. Because if he has a side effect or a reaction, he'll be in the perfect place." And it was. Again, it was logical. It made some sense, but we it was they described it in the book as mistake number three, and this one was a doozy. We never should have done this. So we allow them to admit him to Cambridge Hospital, which was had a ch- uh, children's unit. And you know once you're you take a voluntary commitment to a place like that, they have a lot of rights, uh, and they can you know petition to keep you if they think they should keep you or if you want to pull them out. So once we get there, we sort of realize this was a mistake. we He doesn't belong here. We're stuck here. And we couldn't get them out. I mean, mm-hmm. the woman, the doctor there was very aggressive about threatening us and saying, I need two weeks to evaluate them. And if you try to pull them out, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to have a different conversation. I mean, she was, she was super
0: threatening aggressive. Threatening to
1: take she, your child, essentially. Yes.
0: yes. Yeah. To, so she <laughs> the visitation rights. They were going to move me to a facility where they couldn't visit. And I was, I, at that point, I would have been gone. Once I yes. processed that I, they weren't coming, that would have been it. I never would have gotten out.
2: Yeah, we picked a place where we could sleep over, and my wife spent the night there, you know, most of the time. But I spent some nights, and we we were almost always there. It was very rare for one of us not to be there with him. And he, the doctor, increased the Lamictal a ton. And we, my wife is in bio- pharmaceuticals and biotech. She was adamant about not doing this, and and we felt like we didn't have the right to say no. So we we let them increase the dosage uh, a lot. And when we finally got out of the hospital, they wanted to put him in a, a bat, is a sort of a mental hospital that, that you can leave freely. And instead, Ryan and I got on a plane the next day and flew to Utah and we went skiing. And, I was, and that was sort of the end for me. Like, I'm, I'm really getting tired the of listening is, to people. Yeah, this is yeah.
0: is broken. Yeah. I, the thing I'll talk about, and this is like, I always bring this point up because like we were really close to the edge at some points. And this was, this was the brush with the edge. We, we touched the void here and came back. So don't forget, I was so damaged with PTSD from what was happening to me that I was starting to almost um, be a little bit delusional to what was happening. Like, Basically, I assumed that, like, oh, my parents must not love me with you know, how many times I've told them like I'm being hurt here and nothing's happening. And then when I got put in the hospital, they told me it was just going to be for a day. Oh. And when I was there for the second day and the third day, and I couldn't leave, I was like, "Scared. They're lying to me. This is yeah. all part of the plan. They're lying to me." Yeah. Did you and think you had that, been
1: abandoned, Ryan? Did you think they? Yeah, were really
0: I felt like I was getting abandoned, and even though they were there, I was like, "Why are they? Why do they keep telling me that it was? You know, it's only going to be one more week. Only going to be. I'm never going to get out of here." And eventually, I decided, you know, if they weren't going to take me out. I was going to get out. So I watched this door and I realized the ID window is just big enough. It has an opening that I could fit through. And I watched and I realized the door inside the hospital connected to a computer room that connected to the ID window. And I watched it for about an hour. And then a lady opens the door and I freaking rushed her and I dove out the ID window and I got into the hallway and I got into like a break room because I realized I couldn't get into the elevator. It had an additional lock on it. And I barricaded the door and I was like trying to get out a window. I was like, if they're not going to let me out, I'm going to escape, you know. So that only made things worse. But they couldn't tell me what was really happening behind the scenes because I would have freaked out. They couldn't say like, oh, if you don't behave, they're just going to take you because then I would have freaked out. So they have to lie to me about like, you know, oh, you know, it'll get better. Like, oh, you know, you're almost out. But I just didn't believe them, so we had to traverse this really narrow balance between telling me just enough that I would stop trying to escape, but not telling me enough that I would realize what kind of danger I was in of being taken. It was it was really rough, and they kept upping my dosage of medication every day. And whenever I acted up, they would just give me meds. Were they they, they, they trying to sedate to...
1: you, which is sedating medicine.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they would give me the dose of um, Lamictal. So if If I had had it in the morning and I'd acted up, they would just give me my next dose. What does it do
1: to your system? What is the, what's the result of that medication?
0: It was supposed to be a mood stabilizer. So, you know, at that point, what I was really suffering from was, um, was my fight or flight response was all thrown off from the restraints. I had PTSD and whenever I sensed conflict coming, I would either immediately start fighting or I would try and run as far as I could. So like barricading the door was like part of that fight or flight response. When people ask me like, oh, what happened? Where did it go wrong? I couldn't even articulate what happened because as soon as I felt the threat, I wasn't thinking about my decisions anymore. I was just making them. I went into just like a complete animalistic state almost. And then when I came down, I felt this immense guilt because I didn't want to act up. I didn't want to have to fight or run, but it would just be my immediate instinct the moment something happened. Um, so they were treating it as though these restraints are supposed to be helping him. And the only reason he, c- he can't function is because he must have like some sort of early bipolar or some sort of mood disorder. So mm-hmm. They were giving me stabilizers, but what they were really doing for me, since I wasn't bipolar, um, they were just sedating me. So essentially when the meds weren't working, they kept giving me more and kept upping the dosage, giving me Um, them at different times giving them early late whatever until eventually i just had so little energy that i couldn't really do much and i wasn't much of a threat and then they're like he's good so yeah they that i got out after a while essentially my dad told me if i was really good i would get out so i just started doing good deeds around the hospital i started like you know we had a roller skating day and i would help people tie Their shoes. If there was a kid who liked to tear up paper, so I would like find him scrap paper and I would bring it to him. I thought if I just like behaved like the best goody two shoes in the whole world, they let me out. And once they did, he was like, We're going skiing.
2: Wow. And that
0: was the, that's the absurdity.
2: I mean, here's a kid who tried to escape from a mental hospital. And then the next day we were on a plane to Utah. I mean, that's, you know, the dichotomy of this. And and then Utah went fine. We had a good experience. The one thing I'll say is, and four or five days later, we get on the plane to go home. And he said, dad, my leg is really itchy. And, and I thought it was dry skin or, you know, sheets or something. And he pulls up his pants and he's got this bumps all over his leg, red rash. And this was the Blackberry day. So I immediately fire off a message to the doctor saying, I think Ryan is having an allergic reaction to Lamectal. And she just, I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And she says, stop taking immediately. And that's it. <laughs> Stop taking immediately. And at that point, I had to shut up my phone. There's no Wi-Fi back then. And I, didn't, should we get off the plane? Should I go to the ER? I, I didn't, you know. And I just had four or five hours of just staring at him, making sure his skin didn't fall off. And you know, and that just gave me more time to think. Like this, what are we doing? This is crazy. Like just yeah. letting them hurt this kid. And I just spent four days skiing in Utah with him. Like how how damaged is he that he needs to be medicated? If if he can travel to Utah, stay in a hotel, eat meals, you know, ski, well, essentially by himself, because he was way better than me at this point. And, and, And so we started to really, at that point, I started really questioning things. He ends up in a second school that restrains less, more as a last resort. They did end up putting him on, at this point, lithium and Seroquel, and then, which are, which caused a ton of weight gain, which, you know, in, in the interest of time, I'll skip ahead, but he, he's, he got his, he got a big belly and his face was really bloated. And, you know, for a kid that prided himself on athleticism, it was, it was hard. And I think uh, some of his YouTube comments would would be about how fat he was. And I would have to delete them before he saw them. And it was like, you know, it, it was pretty tough. So then the second school was better. And um, it, at this point, skiing really started to advance. He became, uh, you know, an elite skier. And, um, you know, he, he, we, we, he outpaced me to the point where I started to have to hire guides and we ended up hiring this guy in big sky, Montana named Ben Brousseau. And Ben becomes an integral part to the story. He, he becomes a mentor and a friend. And, and I would see Ryan and Ben just relate so well together. And I'm like, you know, he does better with Ben than he does with me. And maybe because Ben just lets him be and and lets him, you know, take risks, you know, appropriately and be himself. And I, I, you know, I learned a lot just watching them.
1: Yeah, I think the intention you were telling me before we hit record was, you know, the intention of this memoir of your story your combined experiences was just to, and your words, Ryan, just to show how broken the system is, the therapeutic educational system, but also, I think you also had mentioned to me the medical system. You had trusted that therapist, Rob, which I understood, you know, she had said, Hey Noah, you know, this is a different situation. Why, why did she recommend putting him in a mental hospital for a couple of weeks because she was afraid it, it he was going to get, hurt him? Yes. Or someone? The,
2: the threat of hurting Abigail was the one leverage Because of the she YouTube
1: had. videos?
2: Yes. Yeah. Cause of the knife. Cause she heard about him jumping out of a window, which again, he measured, he knew yes. it was just, we have a yep. funny house. Like our front is really high and our back is really low and so the second floor isn't that high off the ground, but she heard second floor window. Got it. So then she's she heard like, night oh,
1: danger, danger.
2: This so, kid's going to kill himself tomorrow. If we don't do something,
1: let me ask you who is in the system, who, who is in these schools? What do you, what kind of, um, you know, diagnoses, you know, who's there. With okay. you, yeah.
0: So when I went to, I feel like that's where I had the biggest, um, the biggest diversity of people there because it was like I knew a lot of kids at the schools who were like me and just didn't learn well I knew a lot of kids who had no type of mental health issues or like developmental or anything like that who just didn't have families so the second school I was at they had um a residential facility and a lot of the kids there they just had nowhere else to go you know it was just like their mom was on crack and their dad was absent, and they just got left somewhere. And you know that was the only way they were going to go to school. Um, at different schools, sometimes there were more kids with like delays, more kids with you know autism or something. I remember at one of the schools I went to, um, you know, there were kids getting off the buses in like wheelchairs um at a different school it was a lot of kids who were depressed and you know like couldn't be in regular high school or it was really small environments so had lots of anxieties it's a total mixed bag um but I always remembered the kids who you know I would listen to their story and they'd be like I'd be like why are you here you know I would ask them what are you in for you know like we we're in jail and they'd be like oh you know I threatened my teacher and they said I had to go here for a year and then I could go back I'm like, damn and then you'd see that kid there for like three years because they would like do one thing wrong. And then in the next meeting, they'd be like, yeah, he's not ready. He has to stay again.
2: Wow. Michelle, if you look, a lot of these schools, in, you know, back in Boston, you remember they were essentially were, were reform schools, you know, mm. you know, back in the day for kids who had no place else to go or really were, you know, either violent or, or, or just developmentally delayed and couldn't participate in a regular school. All of a sudden, you have this explosion of spectrum-y kids, you know, that that's come on in the last, you know, fifteen twenty years, and they're being pushed into these places, and it's it's it just it's not well suited for for that kind of experience. Those kids are, are really bright, and they do question authority and can be difficult, and they they are almost better off served in like a Montessori type environment where they're allowed mm-hmm. to, the freedom to explore and learn. And I right. think they're being put in a reform school, which is a top-down authoritarian structure of comply or else
1: right which doesn't suit he he used the word you know adventurer you know like he's he's a he thrill seeker like that's who you know ryan's got yeah. all that in mm-hmm. him um what as a parent and like i'm just thinking rob with your story you went to an amazing college you went to law school you're very successful your wife as well you're in this you know lovely suburb and even with all of that like you think about the kids you know ryan mentioned you have no parents or parents are on crack it's like what do you want people to take away from this? Cause you know, I think all parents, at least if they're like, you know, aware, like, you know, if somebody's addicted to drugs, they have their own challenges, but you know, somebody who's healthy and well, and committed to like giving the best for their family. Like, what are you hoping people are going to take away from, um, the memoir?
2: I think for most of us, you know, if, if your goal, when you start out as a parent is to have a happy child who can go on and lead a meaningful life, that can take many forms. And I think for me, it, 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 didn't really, it doesn't really matter now what he does for a living. He's found something he's passionate about. He's going to be great. In some ways, my daughter, who is a very typical child, she's a, you know, a great college, and she's always been a good student. I worry more about her because I don't know if she's found that thing that she's passionate about yet. And I think it may be a series of like, I, you know, you might fail at something. I failed at law. I was, I hated being a lawyer and I ended up doing something I liked. I mean, it's in, in this generation, I think it's really hard for those kids to find happiness. The phone puts so much pressure on them and it's, and it's difficult. That's a far cry from, we we met kids in the system that are, are, you know, life has just been totally unfair to them. And I think, I I don't know what becomes of those kids. I mean, some of these kids, I think if they just got a break and they had any parental involvement that was positive, they they were smart and they were hardworking and they were, they want to do well in life. I I think that there's just so many roadblocks for those kids. And those are the saddest stories of all, because in the end, I think, you know, Ryan is a happy ending, right? It's going to be, he really is. I mean, it's it's an underdog story and, and he's proven everybody wrong. I'd love to go back and look at some of those kids we met along the way and, and see what becomes of them. I, I I doubt there's many happy endings, which is which is hard to hear, but it's the truth. Nobody's gonna fix your child. And if fixing your child means they're gonna be more like everybody else, then you're wrong to begin with. You know, allow them the freedom to to figure out who they are and be what they want to be. And that doesn't mean you have to medicate them to get them to be like everybody else or put them in a school where they're they're going to be forced to be like everybody else. It's, 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 a, it's a tough journey. And I think, you know, life has gotten more complicated for kids at a younger age. And I think a lot of these issues manifest themselves younger because parents are so in tune with, Oh my God, he's not excelling in kindergarten. Oh my God. He's not right. the captain of the soccer team right. in first grade. Or whatever. Harvard's and not on it, the table anymore. There's so much pressure. You know? Yeah, it's so much pressure so make kids. make the happiness the priority. and if and it's if your instincts tell you that a school is wrong or a doctor is wrong, follow your instincts. If I had followed my instincts ten mistakes ago, you know things would have been a lot different for Ryan early on. Luckily, I started to follow them later, and it was only because of skiing. And that's the, where skiing plays in. It was just it gave me a, an avenue to see a different kid than everybody else was seeing. And it took me a long time to convince everybody else. But had I not seen him on the ski slopes, I, I don't know if I ever would have clued in on him. He yeah.
1: he ended up in public right by tenth grade. Yep.
2: Oh yeah. Yep. Uh,
0: and that yep, was great, that was Ryan. Fight. How was that? Oh, it was fantastic. Um, I the instance I always think about is when I walked into the building the first time in public. You know. I was lucky in that my trauma was really specific. I don't honestly know how people who like, if, if, you know, if your trigger is, you know, big crowds or loud noises, like life must be very hard. Mine was very specific to school and just people in those schools hurting me. So as soon as I got to an environment where I knew they didn't do restraints anymore, I was so relaxed I was so relaxed. People used to ask me all the time if I smoked weed, and I and I didn't. I was just I genuinely was so laid back, and it was interesting to see. You know, I met all of the kids who would have been my peers, um, the people who were the same age as me and went through the traditional track. You know, kindergarten, first grade, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, and all of them you know, they thought the school sucked. They're like, this is the worst place ever. Everyone's so fake here. And, you know, I just, I never really shared my story cause I was afraid of, you know, being outed for it, but I was just looking at them. Like, you guys have no idea, like how nice this is. Like you guys can go to the bathroom without asking and without getting tackled. Like, you know, I really, I was not complaining about anything. I thought it was the greatest place ever. And I thought anybody who, you know, hadn't, um, you know, found a way to love it for the freedom it had, like just hadn't been through it, you know?
1: I hear that. And what do you want people to take away from your
0: story, Ryan? What do I want people to take away from my story? You know, I think a lot of people might look at this too linear and see like, you know, oh, like, you know, skiing is what saved him. And that's almost my issue with the title in a way, because skiing really, it saved me, but it's not to say that skiing will save everybody. Um, this isn't the book that says, take your kids skiing. I think my takeaways are if you're passionate about something, you can get through anything. When I was in the hospital and I was at my absolute worst, um, dad told me every day, like, you know, when we get out of this, we're going to go skiing. And just the thought of getting to do what I loved again was what I held on to. And I held on to that through the whole process. And when you find that passion, it'll drive who you're going to be and it'll fit what your strengths are. And when you find a way to use your strengths and do what's gonna make you happy, you're gonna find your place in the world. And no matter what your circumstances are, you can find that. Um, And it can be anything. It can be skiing, it can be basket weaving. The other takeaway would be that I think the system is broken. I think a lot of people look at these systems as though they're this godsend um, who, you know, takes kids who wouldn't have a place to be and sort of gives them a place, but I don't think it's that simple. It gives them a place, but there's protocols that people follow. It's not like everybody has the best intentions. Some people are just trying to do their jobs, and some people are malicious. Some people are taking their anger out on kids. So once they get there, there's no guarantee that it's going to get better. There is a guarantee it's going to be really hard to get out. So if you think your kid can see it through without having to go through that. I would say keep them out of the system. And I think the system needs to change for the better. I, I don't think it can stay the way it is.
1: And you plan to be vocal on that, it sounds like, through the, through your book and hopefully getting more awareness out of your experience, yes?
0: Yeah. I think the more people that read this, the better. I think it's going to shed light on something that has had no light shed on it. My sister tried to bring this up in class when they were talking about social change and people were like, oh, you know, that's not an important issue. And I think having this account out there and having people read it will show that it is an important issue. But I don't want it to be like, you know, my cry for how negative it was. And I don't want it to be like a victimhood thing. Because it really it is a happy ending. And I think the other point of the story, like I said earlier, is that passion and, you know, direction in your life can give you a happy ending. So I don't want to run around being like, this place ruined my life, but I also do want to shed light on what's going on behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having the courage to do that. And you too, Rob, to share your story because it's obviously very vulnerable. The book will be out in March of 2023. It's called Without Restraint, How Skiing Saved My Son's Life. Um, you guys can pre-order it. Where is it
2: able to be found, Everywhere. Rob? Amazon, the Barnes and Nobles, Walmart, Anywhere it's available for
1: pre-order now if anyone yep. wants to dive into you know this more of the, the story. But um thank you for taking the time to share it for your vulnerability, for your courage, you know, and wanting to shed some light on this, these very important issues, especially with the mental health, you know, just issues just skyrocketing. Maybe there's a lot of misunderstood children out there and maybe there's a different lens to be viewing this. And also maybe we don't always, shouldn't always put our trust where, you know, just because somebody has got a degree at the end of their name, it doesn't necessarily mean they know your child best. Like that's what I take away. You like listen to your intuition, you know, your child best and your intuition is not going to steer you wrong. And from Ryan, I love that passion, you know, can drive you through to get you through anything. I mean, just a lot of A lot of important messages today. So, thank you both so much. I really appreciate your time today.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration